Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend, produced by Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. Lore and Legend brings you myths, legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We're telling stories the way that they're meant to be told, and we're doing it in the style of traditional storytelling, enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Lore and Legend is called The Gates of Dream, exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth and the gods and spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode comes thanks to the contributions of our subscribers, story folk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, and Shawnee Basket. Thanks to all of them for their generosity and their enthusiasm for our stories. If you'd like to join Christy, Paul, Sean, and Shawnee in supporting the podcast, you can donate to us through Ko-Fi or become a regular subscriber. For more details, visit our website and click on Support Us. In this, the final episode of Series 2, the aged king, Odysseus, sequestered in his mountain fortress, tells the story of how he travelled to the lands of the dead and received a prophecy about the circumstances of his own death. But as an unknown enemy approaches his gate, is the time finally at hand. From storyteller Rick Scott, and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this is Lore and Legend, The Dream of the Fates. Under the long shadow of night in the hills above Ithaca, within the towers of his high sheltering fortress, the aged king Odysseus said to his servant, Such stories did I hear from the lips of Kirky when I shared the bed of the goddess. But when a year was gone, and the seasons had turned, and the long days of the year had made their course, then my men began to think themselves of home, and they put me in mind of Ithaca, of my high-roofed house, of my wife and my child. So when the sun set and darkness came on, my men all lay down to sleep throughout the witch's shadowy halls, but I went up to the beautiful bed of Kirke, and I told her that I must return to Penelope. That night, as we slept one last time together in her bed, Kirke asked me where my thoughts strayed. I told her I was thinking of this story. One day, back in Ithaca, before we all were soldiers, I sat in the field with a young boy. His name was Elpenor, and he was the youngest man to come with me to Troy from Ithaca. It was a cool summer evening, and the sun was drooping low in the sky. Elpenor lay down on the grass, and soon lay under the heavy wings of sleep. As he slept, I watched him, and as I did, I saw a wonder. For as he slept, the young shepherd's lips parted and from out between his teeth crawled the shape of a beautiful white-winged butterfly. It crawled all down his body, then fluttered down to a worn path in the grass that led down to the stream. I followed that butterfly as it made its way down there, and I saw that between the banks of that stream were seven stepping stones, between which the white butterfly began to flutter. I crossed the stepping stones and watched as the butterfly wafted between the tall stalks of the bulrushes on the opposite bank. Then I saw, lying in the grass nearby, the brilliant white skull of an ox, bleached white by the summer sun's heat. The butterfly flew up and into one of the sockets of the skull. Then it disappeared within, and it seemed to be crawling all about inside. At last, the butterfly came out through the opposite socket, and I followed it back, down through the bulrushes, over the stream, 
until it returned to where young Elpinor lay sleeping, and it crawled back between his lips into his mouth. On the instant Elpinor awoke, stretched and yawned, and I, quite astonished, told him that I had just seen a great wonder. You think that you have seen a wonder, Elpinor cried. Wait until you hear what I have seen, for I have just dreamed a tremendous journey. I dreamed that I was in my house and having just eaten, I stepped outside and I found myself on a wide, fine road with great green hedgerows springing up on either side of me. I followed that road and it led me to the very edge of the sea. And I set off over the sea, crossing from island to island, seven in all, until I came to the shore of some great and far-flung distant country. There was a great forest there, with trees of such height as I have never seen before. They seemed to go all the way up to the sky. And I wandered through this forest until I came to the other side. And there, there on the other side, was a palace a palace of gleaming white marble. I went in through the great entranceway and inside there were many rooms and chambers which I explored one by one. But as I was exploring within, I felt a strange and sudden urge that it was time for me to return. And then I traveled all the way back through that country and across the sea and back up the long road. And I walked up and into my house and I pulled the door shut behind me and that, that is when I awoke. And here I am, telling it now to you. Look, I said to him, I will show you your journey. And I showed him the journey which the white butterfly had taken. The long road and the hedgerows, I said, was this narrow cut here in the bright green grass. The ocean, it was the stream and the seven islands, these stepping stones. Here is your forest, the bulrushes, and here, the palace that you saw. It was the gleaming white skull, which you see here right before you. Its chambers must have been the rooms. I watched this butterfly crawl out of your mouth and take this journey, then return and slip back again between your lips. And so both of us agreed that day that we had seen wonders, though we could not tell which of us had seen the greater wonder. What do you think it means that I think of that dream now? And Kirke answered him like this. It means that this day you will leave this island. It means you must travel to the ends of the earth, Odysseus, and that at the end of your road, lies the house of death itself. You must seek the desolate wastes and the dusky poplar groves beyond the great river of the sea, beyond Okeanos, where lie the tomb-like yards of the dead. Then follow the river of weeping and wailing that flows there out of the sticks, and over the river of burning, where they flow together at the place of the rock. There you must call out to the spirit of Tiresias, the blind prophet who serves Persephone, queen of the dead. He will tell you the way that you must take your journey's length, whether you shall return and how you might conquer the teeming deep. And Kirky instructed him in the manner with which he must summon the dead and pass over into Hades. Well, when she spoke these words, my spirit, it was crushed. For they were the words of prophecy. There was no way to undo them. And yet, why, I thought, were we so cursed that we must endure yet further adventures before we reached our home? If she had not spoken in the words of prophecy, perhaps I might have stayed, but instead, I wept, and then when I had had my fill of weeping, I went down through the halls and I roused all of my men from sleep 
with gentle words, and they wept at what I had to tell them. But though there were tears in our eyes, yet still, we went down to the ship, and we set the sail in the black hole, and we drew down into the bright surf of the sea. The winds blew us north, as Kirky told us to trust that they would. And all the day long, our ship's sail was stretched as she sped across the waves. And the sun set and all the sky grew dark. And we trailed the wisp of a white-winged bird which skimmed before us over the deep. We did not know, but that was the ghost of that same young dreamer, Elpenor. For on Kirky's island, he had drunk much wine and climbed to the roof of her house to sleep beneath the cool sky, but hearing us rise and begin our preparations, he had leapt up to join us. But he tripped and fell, and he broke his neck. His spirit flew out of him, and he went on ahead of us to Hades. Our ship came to deep-flowing Okeanos, the great river that bounds the earth. It was wrapped in mist and cloud, and beyond there was the cold home of death and pale Persephone. Never does the bright sun shine his rays on them when he rises into the starry heaven, or when he turns to descend again to earth, but the dread night reigns always over the spirits in that land. We beached our ship on its shores, and leading the animals which we had brought with us for sacrifice, we walked beside the stream of Okeanos until we came to the place described for us by Kirky. Before the rock, at the converge of the deathly rivers, I drew my silver sword, and with it I measured and scraped out a pit in the barren soil. Into this we poured out our offerings, first milk and honey, then wine, and then water. Then I prayed to the powerless shades of the dead, promised them these and future sacrifices, and I bid the ghostly host to come to us, and I slit the throat of a ram with my bright sword's edge, and I watched as the dark blood gushed into the pit. And then the ghosts of the dead swarmed up and out of Erebus. Brides and young men yet unwed. Old men who'd been worn out with toil. Girls once vibrant and still new to grief. And ranks of warriors slain in battle. Showing their wounds from bronze-tipped spears. Their armor stained with blood. They gathered. And round the pit from every side. The crowd thronged with strange cries and all of us turned pale in our fear. But with my sword I crouched over the bloody pit to hold the rushing phantoms at bay with its point, while my eyes scanned their hosts for the shade of the prophet Tiresias. At last, through the grasping throng, the prophet did appear. He went on his hands and knees and he crawled into the pit, where he supped and slaked his thirst on the blood until a brightness grew in his eyes. Then turning to me, he began to prophesy the way of my return home, of more troubles and pains and trials to come, of the enemies waiting in my home and hall and how all of these would be overcome. How I would return home and slay the suitors. How I would slay the handmaidens as well. And then all of the other islanders who rose up against me. I was chilled to hear his prophecy. And yet, and yet that was not 
perhaps the most awful wonder. Because once Tiresias had delivered his prophecy and bent down to sup on the blood again, to my horror, I saw that my own mother was there, among the hungry ghosts that crowded the edge of the sacrificial pit. She showed no recognition until I lifted my sword and she lowered her gently sucking lips to the blood-soaked soil. Then the light entered her eyes and she looked up at me and she shrieked in horror. My son, how are you here? still living here in the gloomy dark. And I made to embrace my mother, yet she flinched away from my touch as if I would burn her. Pained, I asked her why she would not let me hold her. But she looked at me sadly and said that this was the way for all mortals after death. The sinews, she said, no longer bind flesh and bone, but the fierce heat of the blazing pyre consumes them. The spirit is drawn from our white bones and becomes a ghost that flutters here and there like a dream. Odysseus, she said, you should not be here. You should be in your home, in the arms of your wife. Don't you know that is the only place where your heart will be warm? The only warmth that men will ever enjoy in all this immortal creation? Cherish it and hold it close. Do not chase glory, for it will rest cold in your heart as the wind here rests in your bones. My mother bid me to follow her, and I walked behind her as my mother's shade led me down along the chill paths of the dead. Behind us, my crew shrank back as all the ghosts descended as one to drink from the blood in the pit. Behind my mother I walked, in the ways of the dead, in that dark underworld of sightless gloom through Hades' vacuous realms and regions void, as when one's path in dreary woodlands winds beneath a misty moon's deceiving ray, when Zeus has mantled all his heaven in shade, and night seals up the beauty of the world. And on those roads, and in those fields, I saw the shades of many famous men and women, such as the poets sing of. Together they swept in great streams, like the rushing winds or the rapids of surging rivers, a sea of souls which swirled endlessly in their revolutions through the portals and stone channels of that great refectory. As we went, my mother spoke. These, she said, are the unending roads of the dead, which our sightless shades tread endlessly. Nothing new comes to their eyes or to the afterlight of their hearts, which are filled only with the smoke of the fire that burned there once before. And they follow in the same chases they pursued above the earth, now they are below. The length of their stride they measured in life, that they I cannot name all whom I saw there, or this immortal night would be long gone before I was finished. But I did see the ghost of Agamemnon. He had drunk the black blood, and so he knew me. And he wept loudly, shedding great tears, stretching his hands out in his eagerness to touch me, but all his power and strength was gone, all that vigour his body once possessed. And he bewailed his murder at the hands of his wife, and heaped curses up on all womankind. And he begged to know the fate of his son Orestes, 
though to his questions at that time, I had no answer. Then there was the ghost of swift-footed Achilles, who knew me, and through his tears he wondered at this my greatest dare yet, to come living to the halls of Hades itself. I tried to tell him that he had lived the best of lives, that he deserved his rest. But he said to me, this existence was such, that he would rather live as a slave on earth than be a king amongst all the restless dead. His only care now was for his sons, to know how they lived, how much they might have followed after him, of their achievements, their joys, their pains, and when I was able to tell him of their exploits, he went away across the fields of white flowering asphodel, rejoicing at the things which I had told him. Ajax was there, and Palamedes. To them I tried to express regret for my conceits, my deceptions, my designs against them. Often I wished that I had never won a suit of armour from noble Ajax, which I never thought would wound him so sorely as to drive him insane. But neither of them would speak to me. They looked right through me. So we walked on. We saw Minos raising aloft his golden scepter to pronounce judgement on the dead. Orion carrying his indestructible bronze club, driving the phantoms of wild creatures he once killed in the lonely hills over the fields of Asphodel. There was Sisyphus, sweat pouring from his limbs as he wrestled his boulder through the swirling dust to reach again the summit. There was Orpheus and his love Eurydice, and the song which they mouthed and which they strung on the ghost of their lyres, it was the song of the immortal fates. Sadly, my mother looked at them. Such songs as they wove is all that the restless tongues of the dead sing. And there are too many tears in those songs of distance. They have no rest, for they were ever making war and strife, and their spirits were never. I saw Bellerophon, with his cloak and staff, who roved about as though he still were on the plain of wandering, blind and lame, and cursing every shade that he met with. I saw King Aphon sitting in the pool with Tantalus, and the shades of Aegisphus and Clytemnestra, bent over and weeping unceasing tears. And then, as we continued to walk, the great yards of ashen trees gave way to fields splashed with ghost-white flowers and the unceasing stillness of the asphodel fields. And we came within sight of the House of the Dead, which crouched at the heart of all the ramparts and the rivers of the land of Hades, and into which all the deathly rivers flowed. From leaf rose the melting fog of forgetfulness. Phlegaton crackled with flame and boiling blood. The channels of Cocytus swelled not with water, but with a river of wind and sleet and hail, a wailing storm in which was heard the confessions of many crimes and sins. From out of Tartarus flowed the Acheron, filled with the tears of titans and mortals, and the sticks bounding them all, blacker and thicker than blood, on the banks of which sat Charon's great wolf. Soon I was standing on the Stygian marsh, where all the rivers meet, and the white flowers they died away beneath the walls of the great citadel. In its bare yards and bone gardens I caught sight of the phantom of mighty Heracles, who they have always said joys in feasting amongst the deathless gods. And yet around Heracles, 
The dead flocked like wild birds, jostling in terror. And he, looking dark as the night, with his bow unsheathed and an arrow strung, simply marched back and forth, glaring around him fiercely as if he was about to strike somebody dead. Eventually, he turned and he climbed the steps up into Hades' citadel. And I, desiring to see more of him and other heroes and warriors, followed the shade of my mother up through the columns and gateways and over the bridge. I found we had come to a vestibule, the first court of Hades. I was surrounded by many portals and doorways, and through these yawning arches, I glimpsed the layers and the seats of many frightful spirits. I saw the sorrows and the vengeful cares lying on their couches. I saw old age, pale disease, fear and hunger, all brooding together in the court there. They were gathered around their leader, naked want. And through other portals, I glimpsed other dread shapes, bondage and death on their thrones. Through the next door, the cot of sleep, death's brother and kin, attended on by dreams of guilty joy. Death dealing war, glowered ever at the threshold of these doors, and through the bars of cages on the arcade above, I could see the flock of furies, draped in chains, constantly thrashing upon their steel-lined cots. In one hall I saw wild-eyed strife with her snaking hair, and she was grinding down the edge of her blood-stained cleaver on a great pumice stone. And at the centre of that great court, a shadowy and majestic elm spread its ancient and mothering boughs, and every branch on that tree bristled with the wings of dreams, deluding dreams which clung to the tree and knitted together its seeping canopy. A breathing tree, which filled the court of the elm like a heart of shadow and mist. And between these arcades and the tree flitted a goddess, Milanoe, the mistress of nightmares and madness. To see her clearly was impossible, because she was a shimmering apparition seen only in a glimmer or a blink, a body of shadow and light, first black, then bright, now here, now there, only just ever out of sight, catching your eye. But if you turned to look, and you saw right through her, she was not there. Yet she was the mistress of these dreams which roosted in the tree and in the high court's nooks. In her arms she held a torch which, when she brought it near, the whispering dreams darted forth. And in her hands and on her waist she held the chains and the keys that unlocked the court's bars so that she might unfasten the cages and open the vaults. I watched as the goddess loosed one such of these gates and from the flues and the cisterns beyond poured out strange prodigies of every kind, the spectres of god-born beasts and the fevered brood of dreams. Kentors came galloping and bodies like Scylla and the hundred heads of the dragon learner writhing as they gave birth to their hideous screams. From some height the giant Brerarius knelt over, clutching far and wide with his hundred hands, grasping. And the ghost of the Chimera, dressed with flame, gnashed and gnawed after the memory of flesh. Amongst them writhed a crowd of gorgons, and through the air flitted foul-winged harpies. And behind them all, the giant Geryon's triple-monstered body shaded all. My soul, it was taken with fear, and I made a show of drawing my sword and presenting the naked iron, and I would have begun to whirl about and cleave the empty air around me, had not my mother's ghost called out, 
and drawn my eyes to hers. Odysseus, she said, do not look too closely. These are but shapes and shadows for but to look too long and too close at Milanoe's train is to let your soul be caught and poisoned by her madness. My heart quelled for the moment. I watched in great astonishment from the corner of my eye as those phantoms and spectres gathered about the radiant torch of Milanoe. And she passed out of Hades' first gate, leading those horrors across the marsh and down the river to where they might cross out of the lands of the dead to haunt the living. I admit, I did ache to see more. And yet as the great elm swayed before my eyes, I heard a great shriek of metal and more gates rattling open, and the countless hosts of the dead came thronging through the portals, sweeping along the channels and roadways, drawing towards us with eerie cries and screeching. And more than that, I thought I heard my own name being whispered from the top of the stairway, beyond the triple locked doors of that bridge that leads deeper into the citadel to the seat of Hades, where Queen Persephone herself is enthroned. Oh, it would be some wonder to gaze upon her pale face. But if I crossed that threshold, I feared that for her pleasure, the Queen would command the Gorgons, or three-headed Kerberos, to keep me bound within the circle there, never to return to Ithaca or Penelope. And so I turned to my mother, knowing that I could not stay. And despite the words she had spoken before, her presence to me was so real and so vivid, I could scarcely believe or recall them. And I threw my arms out to draw her in towards me. Three times I tried to embrace her, but each time she melted through my arms like a shadow. And the last time, she drifted up and away, gazing at me sadly, as first she drifted back across the court of the elm, and then she sank into the shifting river of the dead. And with tears in my eyes, I turned, and I fled then, choosing a passage which led me down the tunnels and the riverways of the land of sleep, and from there into the valley of dream. There the god of sleep keeps two gates, one of horn through which they say true visions easily pass, and one of polished ivory, through which the dead do send unsubstantial dreams to people the night. And beholding these gates at the mouth of the valley, I climbed up the mountainside to their height, and crossing their steps, I fled through them, passing through the pillars of the ivory gate. And from there, over the long tracks of the shades, to my crew and the ramps of our dark hulled ship, over the Stygian rivers, under the white rock, and through the creeping moor of Erebus, and back, at last, back into the dawn-bright waters of our own oceans, back into this living world, back to the sea. The king's tale was finished. The sun was rising outside the window. It was morning. They had passed through the whole night without sleeping. Still the serving boy studied Odysseus with his luminous eyes, 
from across the table. It seems to me that you, great king, have seen to the very ends of the earth. You have crossed over Okeanos, the horizon, been under the white rock. What do you fear, then, if indeed this were the fated day, the fated hour? Odysseus didn't answer, but his hands tightened on the arms of his chair. Did you not hear my story? There is no goodness in the kingdom of death, just life's dregs, its pale reflection. All men's heart and fire is consumed. It seems they know only the taste of tears, and it seems they have only the taste of tears left there. And yet, didn't you see how the only care of those shades of hell, the only thing they held on to was the love of their sons and daughters? Surely then, it isn't right that a son should go down to Hades before his father. When I was in the lands of the dead, my journey home was not all that the blind seer Tiresias prophesied. Last of all, he said to me, Odysseus, death will come to you from out of the sea, but it will be the gentlest of deaths, taking you when you are bowed with comfortable old age, when all your people are prosperous about you. This that I speak to you, he said, it is the truth. But if that was the truth, then how can the dream be true as well? Doesn't the one death cancel out the other, or does it mean that this is the day that I will take the life of my son? At that moment, a mighty trumpet blast cut the air. A cavalcade of shouts of raised voices reached them from the yard of the fort. Odysseus rose, and at great haste, one of his lieutenants clattered into the chamber. My lord, he said, there stands one at the gate who bears in his hands a wicked trident, and loudly he declares that he would see the king. He was told the gate was barred to all, however late or early the hour, by your command, but he would not be turned back, but loudly declared there were none who should keep him from the embrace of his father. And he answers the menace of your guards by drawing his own sword and matching their iron. And then there was another trumpet, and the clamour of sharp shouting of muscular sword song could be heard ringing from the stones by the gates. Without a word, Odysseus motions, and with swift speed and yet reverential care, the serving boy lifts the aged king's spear and scabbard and places them in his open hands. When Odysseus emerges into the morning light, the rays of the dawn sun fall over the crown of the mountain peaks to strike the king's god-wrought armour, lighting it from head to toe in rivers of glittering bronze fire. The chaste work of the great shield flashes, polished and buffed to perfection. His storm-dark eyes glower from beneath the peaked brow and dagger like jowls of the helm. He feels the kiss of the gods on his helm and on his blade. And the world in his sight becomes brighter, more focused. The beat of his heart, it sharpens. He feels the god-breathed air at his back, his body swelling with alien youth. And he was no longer Odysseus, the aged king, but Odysseus, dark as Hyacinth, master of land and seaways, gazing across the dry and dust-swept lengths of the fortyard. In the gate, he could see the warrior, who brandished with weapons from left to right whirling a trident and a blade in lethal arabesques. Five men already lay about his feet, maimed and dying, 
as the warrior bellowed out his defiance. Odysseus raises his eyes then to the sky, and he fills his lungs. He cries out from the bottom of his chest, as cavernous as the hollow of the great wooden horse the day it was drawn before the gates of Troy. You gods on Olympus high, hear me. What is a man who denies his heart, who takes no glory with his hands, who does not stand when he is told to kneel? Does anyone, be they man or god, dare give to me the name of shame or infamy? I who toppled the towers of Troy, I who turned armies when they threw aside kings, I who contended with the ocean's rage, the sea's ceaseless strength, who was swallowed by the storm and yet returned unbroken. I, who have followed in no living man's steps, but has seen behind the very veil of death and crossed through the very gates of dream. For am I not, in the end, here, against the designs of gods and men, did I not outlast all of them? Have I not been called the best of the Greeks? Am I not Odysseus, the great and powerful? And this bellow reached the sky. And Odysseus lowers his gaze back to the gates. But still he makes no move, but marvels at the warrior's display of martial prowess though he knows that he can match it. His forts no longer make muddy swirls and arcs, but have become as clear and clean flowing as water. He knows that they will fight. He knows the fates brandish their knife, draw two bright strings taut. And as he fights, the warrior is making muffled cries. Yield, he says. I want only to talk to the king. I bear only my love. Lay down your weapons if you want to live. For this trident I hold is not of mortal make, but at my own mother's behest it was cast by Hephaestus in his sacred forge. To be wounded by it is certain death. But when the men he fights bear him no heed, he grits his teeth and the whirling warrior twirls cuts down another man, spraying blood and gore across his visor, and smattered with that gore, he rips his own helmet from his head. And then, Odysseus begins to run. His feet draw whirling circles of flashing bronze buckles and dust flung from the ground. As he charges, his chest it full opens, and he cries out a pent-up cry of rage, of joy, of bloody thirst and exultation, as he draws his spear to his body to strike. His men draw the gates aside to admit his charge, and war-mighty Odysseus grins with vicious joy, the godfire in his eyes, as he closes in upon the unshod foe, the usurper, the attacker, the stranger who he can see now shares no likeness with that of his son. And the stranger turns to meet his assault. Iron and bronze resound, the Olympian armor of Achilles and the warrior's armor, which is marbled and enameled by unknown hands, whirled with patterns of waves and weeds of bones and shells like the livery of naiads and oceans. And Odysseus sees, too, the trident that the warrior wields and boasted of. It is as well as much art as tool, fixed with patterned silver, whirled wood and scored horn. The central prong of the trident is a wicked tooth, a serrated blade which resembles nothing more than the hooked barb of a large stingray's tail. And both men are masters of the blade song. They circle, strike, and tumble in the narrow soil between the ramparts. Odysseus, master of shadow play, ducks and dives and cuts obliquely, while the unknown warrior returns back the blows with his spear and sword edge, 
parrying and thrusting with a dancer's grace. They fight beautifully, but also, like dogs, they snarl and they bark and they spit. And as the bloody bout draws out another long circle, the proud warrior strikes out with a well-timed thrust. But Odysseus delivers two god-strong blows that send him reeling, and the warrior stumbles headlong toward the trunk of a flowering olive. With a thud, the warrior's trident buries itself in the bark. The warrior roars, kicks the trunk, hauls back on his weapon's shaft. But before the prongs are torn free, the raw pith and rich oil of that olive tree turns black. The branches curl, the fruit sickens, the blossom crumbles, and in a flash, Odysseus sees that the hale tree has become a dead and withered hand. The warrior reels back round, seeking his bearings. But then Odysseus doubles his own attack. He cuts towards the feet, slits leather from armour, looses plate. His opponent staggers, throws up his trident again and again toward the death blows, bounces one, two, three blows back. But Odysseus twists, winds, braces to thrust. And blind with terror, the warrior brings the trident slashing up to snatch the helm from the king's face and leaves glancing gashes like claw marks over Odysseus's face and cheeks. The king roars, bats the trident aside. The blade shatters the shaft, breaks the ornamental weapon into slivers of wood and coral and bone. And then Odysseus jumps forward with stalking menace, ready to sink his own blades in. But then he falters. No, not falters, but almost stumbles. Odysseus, he takes a knee. The warrior scrambles up, draws the remnant of his trident to him, but does not press, does not attack, but stands there only, frozen, watching, as Odysseus gasps for breath. With shaking fingertips, brushes down the free fresh scars that tear him from cheek to brow, the gashes swell, the blood burns, with some occult ichor of venom raked in on the trident's blades, the stingray's tail. For in an instant, Odysseus feels it, the god breath leaving his lungs. And in his eye, the raw brilliance of the dawn sun dims, all banished shadow and shade or mud and mist and vapour seeps back into the earth about him. The hard, swelling force that lifts his frame, which shoulders Achilles' plate, is all drained out of him. And so he bends beneath the adamant weight, goes down, and what braces him against the earth is just the mutton of his aged flesh, the marrow of his mortal bones. The cry from the ramparts high goes out. The king! The king is wounded! And at once the warrior screams. But it's not the joy of battle fury. He drops the shaft of the trident, tosses aside his blade, and he rushes forward with his outstretched arms to embrace the falling king. And he gathers up the aged king's arms, looks down into Odysseus's wondering eyes. That warrior is weeping, sobbing, begging the king to forgive him. But Odysseus just smiles. With a wavering hand, he reaches out to touch the warrior's brow, to study his face through the light that seems to swim and shade around him. And suddenly, he sees the serving boy there as well, and his mother at either shoulder of the warrior. Their shapely hands also press in about his arms. Yet the serving boy looks less boyish now, more wise, more ethereal, more maidenly. And there are tears in her grey eyes as well. Odysseus looks back to the warrior's eyes. Stranger, he said, thank you. You have saved us. You have saved a son 
from killing his father and a father from killing his son. This is well done by you. They will sing songs about you. The man who dared to write his name in legends by slaying war wily Odysseus, master of seaways and landways. Tell us your name, your land, your birth, <clears throat> so that they may honor the hero who slays me. And with a shaking voice, the warrior answers. My name is Telegonus, native of the sea-swept isle of Aea, son to my mother, the goddess called Kirki, my mother who bore me, raised me, who blessed my heart's desire to leave home, to seek and know the one who sired me. My father, Odysseus of the storm dark brow, storied king of Ithaca. From this day, I know to embrace, but who instead, I, I, I have slain. The Dream of the Fates is based upon incidents and episodes from the Homeric Odyssey, a traditional Irish folktale usually called the Shepherd's Dream, and the conclusion of the Telegonus, the lost epic that tells the story of Odysseus's death, and which comes down to us only in summaries from other ancient authors. The Dream of the Butterfly is a tale that is borrowed from Irish folklore. It's usually told of two Irish farmers, and it's introduced here as a motif which links dreams and butterflies as a representation of the human soul freed from the body. And this fits in with some elements of Greek mythology, because the soul or shade of a person was often described in Greek literature as being like a white-winged creature which left the body through the mouth at the moment of death. The Greek word for the soul or spirit was given to a mortal woman, Psyche, who through her marriage to Eros became the Greek goddess of the soul, and in art she was often depicted with butterflies' wings. The Greek god of death, Phanatos, was also sometimes depicted with a butterfly resting on his hand. The association between souls and butterflies, and between souls, butterflies and dreams, appears elsewhere in world mythology. One of the foundational texts of Chinese Taoism, the Zhuangzi, or Writings of Master Zhuang, include a story about Zhuang Zhu, the ideal Taoist sage, dreaming that he is a butterfly. Once, Zhuang Zhu dreamed that he was a butterfly, a butterfly flitting and fluttering about, happy with himself and doing as he pleased. He didn't know that he was Zhuang Zhu. Suddenly, he woke up and there he was, solid and unmistakably Zhuang Zhu. But he didn't know if he was Zhuang Zhu who had dreamt he was a butterfly, or a butterfly dreaming that he was Zhuang Zhu. Between Zhuang Zhu and the butterfly, there must be some distinction. This is called the transformation of things. And that story has formed the basis for many philosophical approaches to the question of how perspective affects our conception of reality, and whether the distinction between dreaming and waking is a real or legitimate one, 
especially when you consider the universe from a theological or spiritual perspective. In mythology, journeys to the underworld or descents into the land of the dead are known as catabasis. Odysseus's journey to the underworld in this episode includes material from the Odyssey, but also draws some material from Aeneas's journey to the underworld in the later Roman epic, the Aeneid, as well as from general Greek folklore about the underworld and from the Orphic hymns and beliefs. While sharing many characters, geographical features and scenes, there are some important differences between the underworld as depicted by Homer and Virgil. The clearest difference is the different fates of human beings once they reach the land of the dead. For Homer, Hades was a grey and colourless realm in which all life was merely a pale afterimage of what came before. There was no joy or bliss for the soul after death, even if they might have been considered to have lived a good life. In contrast, the subjects of the underworld in Virgil are explicitly judged for their deeds. Souls which have acted wickedly are subjected to punishment, while virtuous souls enjoy contentment in Elysium, the fields of plenty. And in the stream of leaf, human souls are wiped clean of their memories of their former life, after which they will be reincarnated. Aeneas's encounter with the shadowy elm under which the spirits of dreams brood, and the phantasms of monsters like the Kentars, Skillers and the Chimera have been borrowed here for Odysseus's story. And it is also here in this shadowy court of the elm which we introduce the figure of Milino, invoked in the Orphic hymns as the goddess of nightmares and madness. Milino is believed to have been an underworld goddess closely and intimately associated with Hecate and with the moon. Like Hecate, she was said to wander the earth with a train of ghosts and their entourages may sometimes have moved together. In these walks, Milano and her spectres represented the restless dead, those who were never given proper burial or who were cursed to wander the earth forever. According to the hymn, according to the hymn, she brings night terrors to mortals by manifesting in strange forms, now plain to the eye, now shadowy, now shining in the darkness. And hence, she could drive mortals insane. Melano is also described in the hymn as saffron cloaked, and the name Melano itself may derive from the Greek word melinos, which means having the colour of quince. The yellowish-green colour of the quince evoked the pallor of illness or death for the Greeks. It was said that Melano was born at the mouth of the Cocytus, one of the rivers of the underworld, from a union between Persephone and Zeus disguised as Hades, although the Orphics believed that Hades was simply another incarnation of Zeus. Another intriguing detail from the end of Aeneas's visit to Hades is borrowed for our depiction of the underworld. At the end of his trip, Aeneas comes to the gates of horn and ivory, as depicted in earlier myth. After explaining that true dreams go through the horn gate and false ones through the ivory gate, Aeneas goes through one of the gates to rise back to the real world, but he is said to have passed through the ivory gate. And readers and scholars have always been unclear about the meaning of this moment. It's been suggested it might be a comment on the nature of myth-making and storytelling by Virgil himself, since Virgil's Aeneid was crafted with specific political and cultural intent. I think that borrowing this motif for Odysseus's journey works well. It fits in with the mercurial and trickster-like nature of his character, his status perhaps as an unreliable narrator, and the themes of this tale, where Odysseus is questioning the transient and temporary nature of human life. It poses a question that many philosophers have asked over the ages. Does life itself amount to little more than a dream? A lost play by Sophocles, Odysseus Acanthoplex, tells the story of how Odysseus is killed by his own son with the spine of a stingray. It is based on an earlier epic called the Telegonus, which is also lost and exists only in summary. In order to avert the fate prophesied to him, Odysseus exiles Telemachus to Cephalonica, 
one of the neighbouring Ionian islands. However, Odysseus is unaware that he fathered a son with Circe during the year that he stayed on her island, whom she has called Telegonus. Coming of age, Telegonus goes to seek his father. His mother Circe arms him with a special spear, fashioned from the spine of a stingray, which was given to her by the sea god Phorcus, and is forged into a weapon at her request by Hephaestus. When Telemachus lands on Ithaca, he searches out Odysseus, but the king's soldiers attack him and he defends himself. When King Odysseus attacks the intruder, Telegonus does not realise it is his father until he has already wounded him with the lethal tail of the stingray. This epic concludes, strangely enough, with everyone returning to Kirke's island of Aea, where Odysseus is buried. Telemachus weds Kirke, and his mother, Penelope, remarries to Telegonus. It is thought that the Sophocles play and the epic may have involved an oracle received at Delphi. However, a version of the story in a book called A History of Apparitions, Oracles, Prophecies and Predictions with Dreams by Thomas Bromhall from 1658, where I originally encountered the tale depicts the prophecy as coming to Odysseus in a dream. And in that telling, Odysseus also retreats to a mountain fortress and watches for an attack by Telemachus. This version also says that the spear borne by Telemachus is fashioned from the bone of a sea turtle. Some sources say that it's some kind of seagull or seabird, but they're always poisoned by Kirky. These different variations seem to stem from a double meaning in the original Greek and also possibly from some mistranslation or badly transmitted sources used by various authors. The medieval poet John Gow also wrote a Middle English version of the Telegonus myth, which included Odysseus's oracle as a dream, and which turned the motif of a stingray-tipped spear to a spear which bears a pennant emblazoned with three interlocking fish. These devices and elements in the different versions of the story are based upon Tiresias' prophecy that death will come to Odysseus out of the sea. The violent accounts of his death seem to contradict Tiresias' promise that he will die in sleek old age, surrounded, it seems, by wealth, success and comfort. In our story, this is held to be true because before his dream, Odysseus is living as an aged king in a prosperous kingdom. But this prophecy and the closing chapters of Odysseus' story were obviously irresistible to storytellers. The prophecy of Tiresias concerning Odysseus' death was either based on these further legends known by the author of the Odyssey, or else these later episodes were inspired by the prophecy itself. Tiresias tells Odysseus that he must travel to a foreign land carrying an oar and plant it in the ground and sacrifice to Poseidon to appease the god for Odysseus's crimes against him. Following that, Odysseus would return once again to Ithaca and death would come in sleek old age and out of the sea. But in the Telegonus, Odysseus's quest to appease Poseidon begins a whole new chapter of travels to the land of Thraspotia where Odysseus becomes embroiled in a foreign war and marries another woman, the Queen Kalidike. And it's only after these further adventures away from his queen and his native land of Ithaca, and possibly a pilgrimage to Delphi, that he returns to Ithaca and eventually meets his fate at the hands of Telegonus. And there are even traditions beyond this story, that Odysseus was resurrected by Kirke or by one of his students, a sorceress who took him to a place called the Tower of the Sea, where she transformed Odysseus into a horse. And in that form, he did die in sleek old age. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 12, The Dream of the Fates. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. 
Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org. Full audio credits are available on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, you can find us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you'd like what you hear and you want to hear another series of Law and Legend, then please consider supporting our podcast by donating to us through Ko-Fi or supporting us on a regular basis through Patreon. You can find all of the relevant links and information about doing this on our website under Support Us. Thanks once again for coming on this journey with us, Story Folk. We've really enjoyed creating and crafting this second series of Greek mythological tales for you. We hope that you'll continue to join us for future episodes and future series. Once again, thanks for your support and thank you for listening, Story Folk. <laughs>